Welcome to The Report Card with Matt Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. As most schools pass the halfway point of this tumultuous semester, one question continues to loom large. Should schools be reopening for in-person learning? That contentious question was the topic of a recent AI web event that I participated in last week with Emily Oster of Brown University, Sarah Cajodes of Columbia University, Susan Enfield, the superintendent of Highline Public Schools, and Marla Uselli Kashat of the American Federation of Teachers. The conversation was moderated by my AEI colleague, Ian Rowe. In the first half of this event, Dr. Oster and I presented some of the data around reopening that we'd been collecting. And if you're interested in that part of the discussion, I'll encourage you to go to the link that you can find in the show notes to view the first part of the event. I thought listeners of the report card would be more interested in the second half of the event, in which panelists wrestled with the thorny considerations that go into reopening for in-person learning during a pandemic. The information needed to make such a decision, the leadership and the support that schools are receiving or not receiving from various levels of government, and the viability of continued remote learning. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our discussion. All right. So Nat and Emily, thank you very much. Uh, we are now joined by Sarah Cahodes, who's an associate professor of economics and education at Teachers College at Columbia University. Also, Marla Uccelli Kashyap, who's a senior director for educational issues at the American Federation of Teachers. And then finally, Susan Enfield, who's the superintendent, someone who's actually in charge of making these decisions uh, at Highline Public Schools in Washington State. And Sarah, I'd like to start with you because uh, Nat and Emily have given us, you know, quite a great picture. But are there other factors at play here? I mean, I, I did a, a panel uh, just yesterday with three parents, all of whom were sending their kids to schools that had provided an in-person option. But in all three cases, they chose not to send their children to school. They either were homeschooling or chose the remote option. So what, what's additional context that our viewers should think about um, as you look at and, and respond to uh, Nat and Emily? So thank you for having me here. And thanks to Nat and Emily for sharing their new data. I just want to highlight how insane it is that it is Emily and Nat who are collecting this data. And we don't have government entities who are giving us guidelines and centralized data mechanisms that would be collecting the, the, these sorts of information and thank them for, for doing that effort. Uh, the biggest thing that I want to add to the conversation is the fiscal cliff that schools are facing. So I'm not just talking about special money to fund reopening in a pandemic, schools need money for PPE, digital infrastructure, ventilation, but on top of all that, we have a pandemic-induced recession, which means that states have much lower revenues and that they have less funding for schools. So some school districts have already begun laying off teachers, and the districts that are going to be the most affected are those that rely the most on state funding, uh, which tend to be school districts that don't have a large local property tax base. So laying off teachers right now, to me, seems absolutely off the wall. There's no model of school reopening that would not benefit from having lots of teachers, lots of staff, and that includes remote teaching. So where are we? We have a crisis for children and families who need school. And remote teaching, as we saw from Nat's evidence, is not up to the task and maybe not even reaching all students. We have good but not perfect evidence from, from Emily and elsewhere 
that schools are not what is driving the pandemic. There's a small but real risk of COVID-19 in schools and, and teachers who are wary of returning in person. And sometimes that's because they're seeing little mitigation, little efforts, and have experienced real losses and fears. And we see Black and Latinx people who have been hit hardest by the pandemic. And when given the option, many are not sending their children back to school in person, even when it's available. And we're on the precipice of, of laying off teachers when we need them the most. So the two crucial challenges I see right now, on top of the lack of government action in so many areas, are communication and trust. How do we get people to trust EMILY's evidence and similar evidence that we're seeing from around the globe and places in the United States that have reopened without seeing spikes and, and, and outbreaks? And how can we handle all of these logistics challenges in the face of this lack, lack of funding, lack of support? How can we re reopen and, and, and mitigate appropriately? So my final thought is that we held Europe up this summer as an example of virus suppression, but now cases are surging again there, just as they're surging now in the U.S. Maybe Europe will get a better handle on this wave than us, and, and maybe they won't. We don't know yet. But the biggest difference I'm seeing when I'm looking at these two areas is a difference in attitudes towards schooling. In Europe, schools are the last things to close, and the appropriate efforts are being put to close other things, like bars, which people, I, people who know me know that I, ha I have a, a bugaboo about that. We know what to do, and we have more information than we did in March when we had universal closures and universal lockdowns. We can be more selective. So my call to everybody here is, what can we do, not just within schools, but across all of the country to put schools first and to help children and families. Sarah, thank you for that. I mean, Marla, Sarah laid out a number of the issues beyond the health concerns, the fiscal issues, the, the lack of government accountability in terms of tracking this data, but she really focused on this idea of communication and trust. So from the perspective of teachers and teachers unions, how do you get teachers to feel comfortable to go back into these, in, these environments, especially given all of the uncertainty and complexities around health. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be here and really appreciate it, Emily and Nat's presentation. And Sarah, I've never met you before, but I feel like we've been reading each other's emails. Um, but just to kind of start on the, you know, the sobering note where we are today, right now, infection rates are increasing in 38 states in our country as we're sitting here talking about this. And one thing we know from the perspective uh, you know, of AFT, we all know there are no easy or perfect decisions. I mean, I do not envy the kind of work that Susan is doing right now. Really, there are two big reasons that teachers want to go back to school. The first is they know learning is better in person for a vast majority of their students, and particularly the most vulnerable educationally and economically. The second reason they want to go back is that a lot of them feel like they're either working one very big job if they're teaching remotely or working two jobs if they're teaching hybrid. We've been saying pretty much since April, you know, based on the science, safe reopening requires something. What are those things? Public health safeguards to prevent the spread of COVID in schools, including masks and physical distancing, cleaning and ventilation and hand washing and sanitizing protocols, right? Nothing shocking there. We also believe reasonable accommodations for school staff who are at greater risk because of personal or household health vulnerabilities are important. 
there needs to be a low infection rate in the community or at least evidence of some kind of containment of the virus. Is it your declining rate of cases for 14 days or something that makes sense? We didn't specify what. And there really needs to be the infrastructure to test, trace, and isolate cases of COVID or suspected COVID. Equally important as a plan for opening schools um, effectively, you need to have a plan for reclosing and reopening on a class, a school, or a neighborhood-by-neighborhood basis if things go south in terms of transmission. And finally, and Sarah, you were right on this, you need the necessary resources to provide those safeguards. Um, as well as the supports to meet the social, emotional, and academic needs of students. So our polling and that of many others, there is way too much polling out there right now, um, says that those ideas are not super controversial, um, but they happen to be pretty darn hard. And so kind of why is that? You know, especially if we know that if done right, what we see is schools aren't super spreaders if all those things are in place, right? One of the the challenges is that we know communities of color are disproportionately impacted by COVID, both health-wise and economically. So in our cities, we are seeing that parents who have the hybrid remote choice are choosing remote. You know, in in New York City, it started 46%. Two weeks in, it's up to 52% choosing remote. The irony of that for me is that in-person working in some places, and there are few examples of that, right? There are real examples in places that are actually cities, small or large, particularly small, it's not happening much in large cities yet with with limited exception, is that those choices that parents are making to keep their kids remote are enabling the opening of schools with smaller numbers of kids and allowing the distancing, right? So we're, we're, it's not exactly a zero-sum game, but it's a really, it's a really tough game. Um, I don't need to say further that we don't have the best data. Thank you, Emily, Nat, NEA, some of our affiliates who are trying to do this kind of collection. We also don't have a public health infrastructure that really allows us to do what needs to be done, whether it's testing or isolating or tracing. But I think that one thing that's really important is that actual safety and perception of safety both really matter. And that's where things like the impact of structural racism and access to health care the history of labor management relations in a community, those things come into play, right? So we talked about, I think it was Nat who mentioned that, you know, we're learning new things every day and what new information are we learning? I just saw a new report from the National Academies of the National Academy of Sciences that just came out a couple of days ago. And they really, I think, brought home this notion that you can't separate in-person learning from resources. In developing plans for reopening, I'm quoting the report, and implementing mitigation strategies, um, districts need to take into account existing disparities within and across schools, whether it's facilities, staffing shortages, or overcrowding, or even the ability to provide masks. Districts that are highly resourced have well-maintained buildings. They'll be more likely to implement those strategies, and then more kids can go to school. So our approach has been, you know, just think about from the perspective of a teacher or parent, would you send your child to or work in a school that you know is not highly resourced and can't put those strategies into place? So what we and our affiliates and uh, born out around the country and what we're hearing from our members is what we want to do is figure this out together, but we don't want to do it without resources. We don't want to do it without a role along with school district and public health authorities in figuring out the how. And we want a lot of open communication along the way.
Well, Marla, thank you. Thank you for laying out even more complexities. I mean, you, you just said infection rates are going up, I think you said in 38 states. And yet Emily's data shows that the infection rates are like 0.15%. I mean, Susan, you run a district with 19,000 students. How are you balancing all of this information to make what can seem like life or death, death decisions, not only for your staff, but also for kids? Thanks, Ian. And, and Sarah and Marla, thank you for that context. I really appreciate it. It's a nice backdrop for what I'm going to share about the work here. And I can say that Highline was an early contributor to Emily's work. So we are a participant because I do think it's critically important. So Highline is a richly diverse school system. And we have a promise to know every student by name, strength, and need. So they graduate prepared for the future they choose. I would argue a promise that is more important today than ever before. I think I can safely speak for every superintendent I know when I say we're asking the wrong question. Of course, we should send kids back to school in person. The question is, can we? And how do we do it smartly? And that is the question that superintendents like myself are having to wrestle with right now. And the challenge is that the information that we are getting from public health officials, from our state education agencies, changes so rapidly that what I tell my school community today is true, tomorrow may be different. And so I preface everything by saying, what we know today <laughs> is this, and, and we make decisions that way. I will also say that the challenge for, for district leaders is that we each have very unique contexts, and it's, it's important that we make these decisions based on the local context in which we're living. And, and what I mean by that is we're located just south of Seattle. We're only about 30 minutes away from the facility where the first fatality from COVID occurred in the United States back in the spring. So that contextual piece matters. There's, a, I think, a heightened sense of, of awareness and concern around the virus that exists in the Puget Sound area where we are. My goal this entire time has been to make sure that number one, we're keeping our students fed, safe, connected, and educated. Number two, that we're providing our staff with the supports they need to do so, and that we're connecting with and supporting our families as best we can as well. I've also worked incredibly hard to try to provide consistent information in a world of inconsistent and conflicting information that people are trying to wrestle with. And one of the things that we promised our community early on was that we would take our guidance from King County Public Health and the State Department of Health. We would follow their guidelines for when it was safe to reopen. And so the metric, and I know that Washington State has been the subject of some question as to whether we are more conservative in our metrics for reopening. That's not my decision. As a public school superintendent, I, I have the responsibility to work within the, the, the metrics and the frameworks that my public health officials are giving me. And the reality is that while rates are starting to go up as they are elsewhere, when you look at King County overall, you know, I have parents saying, well, it, it doesn't look that bad. But where I am in South King County, the rates are significantly higher. And this is where it gets tricky. You can't just look at a county rate. You need to look at district-specific city rates. And the reality is that we know this virus impacts communities of color at higher rates than others. And so if you are blessed to serve in a richly diverse district like Highline, as I am, we see our COVID activity rates in our district two to three times higher than what the county average is. 
I am desperate to get children back in school, but I cannot in good conscience say to my staff and teachers and families and kids come back in person when our rates are that high. I just can't do that. It does not mean that I don't want to. I desperately want to. But we have made a commitment that we will keep the health and safety of our students, staff, and families paramount. And frankly, our families have told us, and I think someone alluded to this earlier, that many will, will likely choose to keep their students at home even when we do transition into hybrid. I think the other thing that is, is worth considering, I mean, obviously we're driven by what the COVID activity rates are. That's, that's first and foremost. But you know, the hybrid model is incredibly complex. And I think my colleagues who are, are um, moving forward with their hybrid models would say incredibly challenging. I think Marla alluded to the fact that it's incredibly tough on teachers. It's, it's, a, it's a big lift for them. And so I also had to weigh, does my staff have the capacity to pull that off? I, I cannot in any way overstate the level of, of exhaustion and burnout and sadness and frustration of those of us working in public education today. And I have the responsibility to make decisions in the best interest, yes, of my children, but not at the expense of my staff. I have to, I have to weigh all of those things. And, and, and if we are going to return in a hybrid, which we will at some point, we have to be able to get it right. We made the, my board and I made the incredibly painful decision last Friday that we would remain in distance learning through the end of the first semester. It's a horrible decision. I don't want to be in distance learning. But the reality is, were we to come back in hybrid, I would likely be shutting down again. And my concern is that that level of uncertainty and chaos would just wreak havoc on families and staff. And so we made the difficult decision, which I believe is the right one for Highline. But the challenge is that I know kids are losing. I know they are. I know this model is hard on my staff and heaven knows I know it's hard on families. But as I said um, in one of my early interviews, when this pandemic started, we are simply being asked to do the impossible as school district superintendents. There are no good answers here. And so we are just trying to make thoughtful, compassionate decisions based on the data that we have that is in the best interest of our specific communities. Susan, thank you from the perspective of a real practitioner balancing the needs of trying to do hybrid well. I totally get it. There's actually a, a network of charter schools in New York City, Success Academy, that proactively said we're 100% remote through the end of this calendar year, at least. Uh, Nat, we just got a question. And given the reality, even though we all do uh, want and believe that in-person instruction is much more optimal for kids, the reality is that remote learning is going to be, be with us for some time. Have you seen enough improvements in remote learning across the country where it's not as much of a sacrifice to kids learning as what we saw earlier this spring? Uh, that's an excellent question, Ian, and it's, it, it's one that's at top of mind. I would first just caution that based on the improvements that we've seen in our data, that those, those aren't good measures of the quality of instruction. It's really just sort of baseline measures. So it's certainly better than if we were running off of paper packets this uh, fall, or glad we're clearing that bar. 
But I think that uh, a lot of the struggles that we had with students sort of ghosting remote instruction are, are just going to continue to be a struggle. It's a it's a part, not really a feature, but it's a part of, of remote instruction. It's going to be part of the struggle. It's just easier to connect with kids when they're there in person and to keep them interested. So there's a lot of reasons for that. I would say that in uh, most, every person that I've talked to, be they teacher or administrator, says that this is harder than in-person learning. The research that we've had over time as far as how well remote learning works is not good. And that's with self-selected groups, not with everybody forced into this. So I don't think there's anybody that's really saying, you know, it's, it's probably going to be okay. I think everybody's saying, no, it's not going to be okay. There's obviously very real concerns about just you know, turning a blind eye to the risks of coming back uh, or trying to jump into, uh, you know, from the frying pan into the fire with a hybrid uh, plan that you're not ready for. But that does not mean that remote learning long term isn't going to be a major drag on students' academic outcomes and their life outcomes. Yeah. Emily, do you want to weigh in on that, on that as well? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I think is really resonant with all of us and comes out of all of this is just that like remote learning is very hard, but that the back and forth is is in some ways like the the hardest thing and it's hard for everybody. And so I think part of what has been really challenging about this fall is, you know, there are some places that kind of went for it and opened in person, you know, I think with some success, um, some of them. Uh, and then there's the sort of remote option. I think transitioning between those has proved to be, is proving to be, I think, really difficult. And, you know, I was, I was struck by what you said about success, because I actually talked to Steven Moskowitz about this decision at some point early on. And she said, look, we really needed to invest in learning. And we could not simultaneously spend all this time, like, trying to optimize our remote and also figure out, should we have people here for 45 minutes and, you know, Tuesday afternoons? And then how are we going to manage that? And that like, there was sort of a need to like invest in the remote and that was going to make it as good as, as good as possible. And so I think there's kind of that, that tension, we're really seeing that come out that just doing both things is really, really hard. It's a huge lift for teachers and for superintendents and for like everyone. Yeah. I mean, Emily, your data is so compelling and granted we need more of it, but is it opportunity to, to declare victory that whether it is because of access to PPE or social distancing that the infection rates are so low, should we have confidence or should we not be trying to send the message to leaders like Susan to say, you know, uh, you know, or Marla, that the, the rates are low and, and we should be more aggressively putting kids back in person? And I think there's sort of two things I would say out of our out of our data. So one is is that it's pretty clear that the school rates are going to reflect the community rates. And so if you, you know, and we're seeing that, it's not that they're higher, right? So some people I think worry like we're going to come into the schools and there's going to be like huge outbreaks that are driven by K-12 schools. We're not seeing that. We don't see it in our data, but I don't think we're seeing it in other data either. Not that there aren't any, but that like this is not a feature of the sort of K-12 environment, particularly the, the elementary kids. But that is very different from saying we won't have cases of COVID in schools. And it, it is going to scale with the community. If your community testing, you know, prevalence rate is 5%, that means like basically about 5% of your people are going to have COVID. And even if they don't spread it at all at school, you're going to have trouble keeping your school open when 5% of your teachers and are out uh, with, with COVID plus the people you have to quarantine. So I think that's, there's a sort of caution there that is real. And is something, you know, we need to, we need to kind of think about how, how that's, uh, how that's manageable. The other thing I would say is, you know, our data 
are from schools that are doing the things that Marla has highlighted as important to do. They are masking, a lot of them are distancing. I think we will learn more about which of those things are the most important as we kind of move forward. And that's gonna be like really key uh, because the capacity for schools to do these different things is, is different. So, you know, I, I mean, I will say, I think more districts should be open than, than are. I think that there are a lot of districts, particularly around where I live, you know, it seems very unfair that like East Providence is, has opened their schools for kids and the kids are at school and, you know, like one step across the border in Seekonk, everyone is learning remotely. I think that, that, that suggests there's probably not a good consistent set of decision-making going on in some of these places, particularly in the Northeast with very low prevalence. Sorry, I very quickly, uh, just to echo that in Emily's data, you see differential rates between high schools and elementary schools. And this question may be bad in some sense to say, well, should they just be schools? I mean, there's a difference between elementary schools and high schools, both in the, the potential for infections uh, and, and community spread, but also in the importance of in-person learning for second graders compared to you know, a junior in high school. It's just going to be easier. And I think that it's it's important to draw that out. If we were to prioritize something, I would be 100% for getting young kids in first because, uh, you know, school isn't about lectures to them. It's not about information transmission. It's about learning how to socialize and uh, relate to teachers. Marla, you wanted to weigh in as well? Yeah, I wanted to jump in both on that priority and kind of on, you know, building on what we've learned. We have learned a lot from everything from like childcare provided to the kids of frontline workers early on. We know we can do things. Young kids can wear masks, right? We know what Nat just said about it being more important for young kids and also more doable to be in person. We also know that places that started out doing things like remote learning as part of the way they do business districts that have done that have a head start. We know that with planning time, you can make both remote and hybrid better. Hybrid is incredibly, incredibly difficult to do. But actual real collaborative planning time in Massachusetts, they kept the year the same for teachers, shortened it for kids so that that time would exist. So there there are things we can do all along the way. But I, I also want us to remember that sometimes it's easiest to get the data. And I think Emily is seeing this in places that are more resourced to begin with. And so we got to be careful that what we're learning is applicable to places that don't have those resources and don't have low community spread and don't have low density. So Sarah, you talked about communication and trust being so critical. And Marla laid out almost a checklist of the things that need to be in place. Emily has laid out, you know, has identified those schools that seem to be doing the things that dramatically decrease infection rates. How do parents know? How, how, how would you handle this question of communication and trust? Because it seems like there is a lot of knowledge out there. And can do parents have access to the information so that they could actually hold districts accountable for doing the things that are driving the infection rates so low based on Emily's data? I think that it's a huge challenge. And, and if I uh, knew the answer, I would have written the article that says, you know, th this is this is the key. I think there's a lot of power potentially in this idea around starting with the youngest children, where we're starting to see this body of evidence more and more compelling. I've been talking about this since July, that younger children are less, less at risk, have the most need, and also uh, mitigation efforts are easier in elementary schools where you don't have periods throughout the day, teachers and, and students 
switching around. So, so perhaps that is one path forward. But I also think that there really is something to say for uh, leadership at every single level, from the very top to state leadership to district leadership, to be very clear, as we heard Susan saying, these are the criteria, these are the standards that we're adhering to, and that's what we are going to follow so that there is less of this uncertainty. I think there also is a job to communicate and talk about how it is going to be a bumpy road and that identifying positive cases is not a bad thing. It should be viewed as a good thing in the context of low transmission overall. Identifying cases and closing classrooms, for example, is an opportunity to stop the spread. And while it's going to be frustrating and it is going to be hard uh, on individual families and people who need to work and quarantine and balance all of those needs to, um, to, to get us to act together around that, as opposed to thinking of that as something scary or something to fear. Thank you. Emily, we just got a, a, a very practical question from Gemma for you. And basically she says, because we know a significant share of families are still choosing remote, even though their districts may be offering in-person instruction, how does that impact how we view your data? Because is it predictive? If we get more kids now going in person, can we assume that the infection rates would be the same? Right. This is a good question. I think, you know, you can filter our data by places that are full-time in person versus versus hybrid, and that's going to give you a sense of the of the density. This is something we know a little bit more about on the on the back end. And so actually, like in, in principle, could, could do more analysis of. But it is, you know, it's certainly, I think Marla highlighted this, you know, some districts are benefiting from the fact that like they're able to distance a bit a, a bit more with, with having fewer people in person. But I will say we're not seeing huge, at least, you know, in, in the last time I looked in, into the data, we don't see like, you know, sort of huge differences in rates across places that are hybrid versus versus full-time. And similarly, as I said, with the teachers, even for places that are that are sort of like fully remote, Again, kind of consistent with this idea that what's happening is much of the infection is community required and is is arriving um, is arriving in. So I think the big question I'd ask there is, you know, how important are some of these things like distancing, which will be more difficult if you have fifty percent of your students than twenty five or seventy five versus versus fifty. Yeah, I think we'll know more about that soon. Ian, I wanted to just say one quick thing about uh, in, in sort of response to that, but also what Sarah said, and just point out the one thing that I'm mad about. I'm not mad that more schools aren't open, even though I, I do think more schools should be open, but I am, I am mad. I'm just angry about the fact that we have a major failure as far as data collection. Emily and her effort should not be one of the principal ways that we find out how transmission in school is affecting these things. Congress should authorize the Department of Education to gather data on this, to get the denominators so that we can know whether we can send students back or not. That's how you make people confident, by having a scientific method that gives people confidence. And uh, it's an abject failure that I'm having, no offense, Emily, on, on this webinar instead of a, a CDC operation or some equivalent. I, tot I totally agree. I mean, I love being on your webinar now, but like, I wish that there was somebody else on this webinar than me. So where is the voice of superintendents like Susan? Like Susan, are you part of consortiums who are asking that question? Why is it that there isn't a central source of data? Because I, I would imagine that you and many of your colleagues are looking towards your leadership to say, you know, give us more guidance here. 
I will say, I think that there's been just an, you know, unforgivable lack of leadership at the federal and the state level. The, the real leadership that we've seen during this time is coming at the district level because we've been left to figure this out on our own. And I agree, I'm grateful for the work that Emily's doing, but we should be having that from somewhere else. And, and that therein lies the challenge that we are each left to figure this out on our own. And that is what makes the trust factor so difficult. I am fortunate in that I'm a bit of, a, of an, an anomaly in that I'm serving in my ninth year as superintendent at Highline. I know my community, my community knows me. And even the people that don't like me, they know who I am and they know what I stand for, right? And there is a level of trust that I have with my staff and my community because of my longevity. But most superintendents are lucky if they've been in their district for three years. And so I think that compounds this trust factor. So you have this notion that, you know, we're not getting good, reliable data at the, the state or federal level. And if you're new to your community, you haven't been able to build up that trust yet. And I think that that really is critical. I will say, though, because there is so much, you know, there is so much to be angry about and frustrated about and some days hopeless about, but, but there, there is good happening. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that our kids and our teachers and staff and families, so many of them are figuring it out. And each week I get to sit in on Zoom classrooms and from kindergarten to high school. And there, there are amazing things happening. And while, yes, I lose sleep over what our students are losing now and what the long-term impact on our children will be from having been out of school, because even though my staff is doing a great job, you know, doing the best they can at distance learning, the reality is that my children in Highline will, when this is said and done, have been out of school buildings for at least a year, if not longer. And, and that is real. And that concerns me greatly. And I don't think at the same time we should sell our kids short. Children are resilient. They do amazing things. And so I, I am torn between acknowledging the, the negative long-term impacts that I think will be very real and balancing that with the fact that our kids are figuring it out <laughs> and there is learning going on and they are doing, doing really great things. And I don't want to rob them of, of the resilience, the confidence that they have by talking too much about the fact that this is really doing harm because there is good going on. And it's so important that we focus on that too and celebrate our kids and our staff and our families who are doing that. Thank you, Susan. Well, we're almost at time. I, I do want to give each person just one minute to close this out. And maybe I'll just ask the question, what do we need to have in place, let's say by January 1, for us to see great increases in the number of kids that are in school, in person, and then what's the likelihood that those things will be in place by then? Nat, do you want to kick that off? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do. I will. I, I, so I'm not quite confident on this because, you know, blood on the page sells newspapers. But um, uh, uh, coverage of schools where we're not having these problems and uh, of the, um, you know, it's going better in some places than we think. And the, there's a stilted coverage, I think, because, you know, when problems arise, we, we can sell a lot of stories and generate a lot of clicks. And if we could have more balanced coverage of uh, what's going on out there, I think we can actually move the needle on not just, you know, school leaders, but where, where the rubber meets the road is on parents' confidence in reopening schools. Um, I, I'm hopeful. Marla? Great question. Um, I think the thing that we need, two things we need most. One is an easy winter. 
because frankly, a big barrier to school reopening, especially in our cities and with a lot of old physical plants is the ventilation systems are not up to it. And when the heat is on, it's going to be a problem. So I'm hoping for an easy winter. The other thing I think we really need, there's no doubt about it, is we need action on a HEROES Act for stimulus from the Senate. Um, an updated version of what the House passed in May. And we need that to be able to close some of the the chasm that has emerged and widened between our our most resourced and least resourced schools, um, and frankly, to keep our states and cities afloat. Sarah? I think we need a new administration. Okay. Emily? Yes, um, I think we need a way to to be tracking better what is going on in our schools. And I think we need better control of community spread. I mean, I think that this is like, this is the key, particularly for schools is going to be like, it's going to reflect the community. And if, you know, if we allow everything else to be open, it's going to be hard to keep schools open. Also, I think we need to be prioritizing this as an important thing. And if that means, you know, bars have to be a 20% capacity rather than 100% capacity, I think that that is the kind of sacrifice or zero, even better, that is the kind of sacrifice I think we need to be to be sort of starting to, to talk about. Yep. And Susan, given that you mentioned you made the heartbreaking decision to keep school remote only through the first trimester, what has to be in place by January 1st to reverse that decision? Well, I think to get us to January 1st, sadly, we're going to have to have some a lonely holiday season. I think we're going to have to make some hard choices during a time when we're used to coming together and doing lots of things, and, and that will require a lot of self-discipline. Uh, more importantly, though, we need an administration that picks up the work that Emily has started and provides districts with consistent guidance on how and when to reopen, leaving it district by district, which is what we have right now. Districts are making these decisions independently and and it's chaos and it puts superintendents in impossible positions and it does not inspire confidence nor should it in staff and families. And so an administration that will pick up this work and provide very consistent guidance on how we go about getting our kids back in school. Well, everyone, thank you. That was very powerful, very informative, and hopefully our leadership is listening and we all want to do what's best for kids and that's to get them back in school safely and teachers. So thank you everyone for listening. Uh, This was a great session and onward. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to all who participated in this panel. Sarah Cajodes, Susan Enfield, Marla Uselli-Kashap, and Ian Rowe. Again, you can find a link to the full event video in today's show notes. Thanks also to our producers who make this podcast possible. That's Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Novels. Thank you.